pretty cool. I had never, ever heard about that, but I did a Google search for Luke chapter 24, verse 13 through 35, and that's what came up. I was like, yeah, that is so amazing. Um, now, I had us watch this video rather than reading it, because quite honestly, I hate this section of scripture. I love, I love Psalm 28, what we read at the beginning of the service. That just speaks volumes to me. My favorite chapter in the whole Bible is Romans 14. There is such depth and richness and instruction and in how I should live my life. I love Romans 14. Romans 10.31 has a powerful message for me because back when I was a young adult, I was a carpenter in the United States Air Force Carpenter slash Mason, and my job at this particular base, I had to put in a replacement section of sidewalk. So I was out in the hot Texas sun. I had put in the forms. We had already pulled out all the old concrete. I had laid new gravel down. I had put in the, 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 the metal framing for the rebar and all of the mesh that needed to be in there. And I was, uh, actually, no, I was in the process of putting the forms up. That's what I was doing before we did everything else. And we were going to have a concrete truck come and pour the concrete because we were making forms at various places around the base. And I was sitting there in this hot Texas sun. It was probably 95 to 100 degrees. I was wearing the military uniform and I was sawing with a handsaw. And I was just miserable. I was just hot and sweaty and miserable. And this friend of mine drove by. He was in charge of the firing range of the base. He was a tech sergeant. I was... A staff sergeant, I think, at the time. And he said, hey, Brother Bob, how you doing? Because he was a Christian. And he said, I said, I'm okay. I'm just, I'm miserable right now. I'm hot. I'm sticky. And I just don't want to be here. And he said, no, 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 no. No, you don't understand. And he quoted to me 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. Whether you eat or whether you drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. So every time you push that handsaw, Bob, you just need to go, glory to God. Glory to God. Glory to God. Glory to God. And I was like, glory to God. Glory to God. Glory to God. But it was an incredible thing that has lasted now over 40 years for me. A story that touched my soul because scripture was applied to my life and it meant something. And it it was something that I could own and carry with me. It helped me in my walk with Christ. That's why I love those passages. Romans 28, the, the place of safety, God being our place of safety. Matthew, I mean, excuse me, um, Romans, excuse me, Psalms 28, Romans 14, which tells me how to live and how to love. And then 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, give it, whatever I do, do it all for the glory of God. Another one, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 22, for I have Become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. That was the verse that I chose as my ministry verse for my life ministry. God has allowed scripture to become formative in my life and has used it in a powerful way to shape me in the way that I am supposed to be. And then we come to Luke 24. And I hate it. Whoa, I was actually in a pastor's meeting this week on Monday, and this is an iron sharpening iron meeting that there's a group of pastors that get together once a month. And what we do is we come in together for the first 30 minutes or so visit. How's your life? How are things going? And then we get into scripture reading 
And we read the scripture together and then we separate for an hour and we go and we study that passage of scripture. Then we come back together again and we spend an hour discussing what the Holy Spirit revealed to us through that passage. Then we share lunch together and then after lunch, then we do what's called a review of life and we start sharing the things that we're dealing with and struggles that we're facing and questions that we've got. And then we kind of converse and talk and again, iron sharpening iron. So this past Monday, I get there and the person who's bringing the scripture says, I've got a passage that I'd like us to look at. And I said, okay, what is it? And he said, Luke chapter 24. And I went, oh. And literally said, he said, why did you do that, Bob? I said, because I hate that chapter. Oh, I want to hear this later on after we have a chance to go with together and do our thing. I want to hear back why you hate this so much. And literally, as we process through that on Monday... For that hour, actually two hours, private and then and then public, um, the Lord said, "Yeah, let's talk about that on Sunday, Bob." <laughs> and I set it aside until later on in the week. And then when I I said, "Lord, what do you want me to preach on on Sunday?" He said, "You know what you want to preach on Sunday." <laughs> yeah, obedience. I don't want to preach that. I hate that chapter. So so let's look at this lovely chapter that God has given to us. It's in Rome. I mean, it's in Luke chapter twenty-four. It's the very last chapter of the book. Now, we. What's really crazy is God has already told me I'll be preaching out of this this week and next week. Never tell God you don't like something, because He's going to just bathe you in it. Um, but Rome, Rome. See, I don't even want to say the word Luke. Luke chapter twenty-four. Verses 13 through 35 for this week. And then we'll be looking at 36 and following next week. But 13 through 35. You just saw the story, but let's look at some of the highlights, okay? First of all, two of them, the them are two disciples of Jesus. They weren't the 11, you know, the, the inner core group of Jesus. The apostles, these were two others that were part of the followers of Christ, but they were not the 11 uh, apostles. Um, We are only given one of them's name, Cleopas. Cleopas is a name that is in history. So there are extra biblical references to a person named Cleopas. We have no proof that the person who's of historical uh, veracity is the same Cleopas as well. Because like, there's there's lots of Bobs, there's lots of Marlenes, there's lots of Marys, there's lots of Craigs, there's lots of Ruths. So who knows that this Cleopas was the same Cleopas that we know about extra-biblically. However, there's a possibility that he is. The reality is, is he was a real person. This isn't just a parable, is what I'm saying. We don't know who the second disciple was. There are some who have hinted that the second disciple was Luke. There are some commentators who say that's not possible because in the context, these are Jewish followers of Christ and Luke was Greek. Luke was not a follower. He wasn't a Jew by birth. He was Greek. So there are some who say it makes perfect sense to think that Cleopas and his wife were heading to their village of Emmaus. Because it was all over with. Who knows? We are not given any of that information. We just know that two 
Jewish disciples of Jesus are walking from Jerusalem. It is the third day since his death. We understand that to be Sunday. It has already taken place that Mary and some of the other women went to the tomb earlier that day and came back and reported, because if we took the time to read it, the verse section, the verse uh, 12 verses of chapter 24, is that story that the women went to the tomb, then came running back and said, his body isn't there. Then some of the disciples went back to the tomb and found that what the women had said was true, and then they were still just hiding in this upper room, scared that they were going to get taken by the Roman authorities and by the Jewish authorities. But these two disciples of Jesus have left Jerusalem and are heading to Emmaus. And all of a sudden, Jesus follows, I mean, finds them on the road. And he says, what are you guys talking about? And they said, are you the only one that's been in Jerusalem? These last few days and doesn't know everything that's been going on. So from that, we can deduce that the, the trial of Christ and that the, uh, the death of Christ was not just some little hidden away thing, but that it was some big thing. There are some that suggest that Jesus might have been put before the Roman governor, but that not many of the population of Jerusalem knew about it. It was just a small group of people. Well, from what Cleopas and his friend are saying, this was a big deal, and how could you be in Jerusalem at this time and not have heard about what's been going on? This has been a big deal. And then there's this point, and this is one of the things that I hate about it. It says, verse 16, well, verse 15, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. Verse 16 but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. See, it sounds to me in these words that God's messing with them. Okay, you heard me say just a few minutes ago to the kids that God is the one that empowers us, gives us the, the eyes to see, the ears to hear. And here, and I, I read a lot of commentaries about this and every single one of them say this was an actual imposition of inability to see. This wasn't just them not seeing. This was they were kept from seeing. And that sounds like manipulation and it sounds unlike the God that I serve. I don't understand it. It drives me crazy. And then, if you go back, go further on, in the, in the, uh, the, that section, it says in verse 31, well, verse 30, when Jesus was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them, and their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And then he vanished from sight. See ya! It just seems like a game is going on. I'm going to make sure that you can't recognize me. I'm going to engage you in conversation. We're going to play a little game with why don't you understand everything you've been taught for the last three years. And I'm going to repeat it to you again. And then when you finally are able to recognize me, poof, I'm gone. It just seems, ugh, I just, 
I don't like it. It doesn't sound like the loving, kind, caring God, shepherd that I that I want to love and worship. What is this manipulation that we're seeing here? What is this game that's being played? How many of you are bothered by my words? How many of you are saying that I'm wrong, thinking that I'm wrong? I've got a to- Okay. Huh? I'm not bothered, but I don't necessarily agree. Help me. Talk to me. Maggie? Okay. Okay. Joni? I want to piggyback off of what you just said because I agree wholeheartedly with what you just said. But Jesus did not spoon feed them additional truth. He guided a conversation with them. What are you guys talking about? Now, we're not given the whole conversation here. What are you guys talking about? Well, we're talking about all of the things that have happened recently. Well, why is that a big deal? It's a big deal because we thought he was the Messiah. We thought he was the chosen one. We thought he was the prophet who was to come into the world. Now, we as Greek-minded people don't understand or recognize that when they say the prophet, it's referring back to the prophecy that happened in Deuteronomy when God said that he was going to raise up a prophet in the end days who were going to bring the people and usher in the messianic kingdom. But this whole point is, is that Jesus was guiding them as a stranger to them Getting them to fine tune their testimony, their discussion, their ability to discuss intelligently what he had been teaching them for three years. Yes, ma'am. When you said he was a stranger to them, actually he was because they knew Jesus, the man, the God man, for three years, but they didn't know. They didn't know until until he was revealed to them, um, Jesus, the resurrected God. Mm-hmm. Um, they did. They they stopped at the cross. 
And so he, he had to go through and review to bring them to bring them to that point and pass that point so that they could know who he was. That's an excellent yes. that's an excellent point to bring up at this point because it was not, you see, I always tried, I've always tried to think, well, Jesus' physical body was so badly scarred through the scourging and then the, the piercing of his face and forehead with the crown of thorns and then the actual holes in his arms and his side and his feet from the crucifixion. So those scars are still there. Therefore, he's disfigured. That's why they didn't recognize him. I was trying to do it all in the physical. But one of the things that came out in my study, which is what she just said, this is the very first time these disciples are seeing the resurrected body of Jesus. And we don't understand or fully comprehend what has changed about his body. But he himself in John chapter 20 shows he's not a ghost. He's not an apparition. He is indeed, he says, flesh and bone. Do you have any fish? Anything to eat? And they give him, the word says, some fish. And the the footnote in John chapter 20 says they also give him some honeycomb. And he eats it in their presence. So there's this understanding that they get when they're with Jesus that he is a physical human body. But... This physical human body has the ability, as we see in Luke chapter 24, to vanish. We see in John chapter 20, the ability for the physical human body of the resurrection, the resurrected body of Jesus to pass through locked doors. We see in Acts chapter 1 and in Luke chapter 24, when we get to it, that Jesus not just disappeared out of their sight when he went to be with the Father, but that he ascended. And then, and we know that they saw him go up because in Acts chapter 1, there are two angels who are standing there in the midst of these disciples saying, why are you standing looking into the sky? Didn't this same Jesus whom you've just seen go to, seen ascend, tell you to tarry? Blah, 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 blah. So we know that there was a physical manifestation of Jesus' resurrection body that people could interact with. Thomas could put his finger into. Jesus ate. But at the same time, there was something different about it. So what I have come for myself to understand was this was not a manipulation on the part of Jesus or God trying to trick the disciples. And it's possible that there was some physical difference about him because his resurrection body is different from his normal, what had been his normal human body. But if you go back to the time when Mary saw Jesus in the garden in John, in John, uh, the, the, the resurrection account in John, she thought he was the gardener. She didn't recognize him. Um, the, the disciples on Emmaus Road didn't recognize him. The people in the in the upper room, the, the disciples in the upper room, John chapter 20 again, they thought he was a ghost. They didn't recognize him as Jesus until he revealed himself to them. So all we all I can see here is that this wasn't a game being played by God, trying to manipulate or, or play with their, their, their minds. This was the reality of the resurrected body of Christ presenting himself 
to his disciples, but in order that they could share their faith in a meaningful way. They could say, he could say, what are you talking about? Well, we're talking about this Jesus. What about Jesus? What do you mean, what about Jesus? How could you be in Jerusalem and not know? Well, tell me about it. What's going on? And they were going, he was supposed to be the prophet. He was supposed to be the Messiah. He was supposed to be, but now it's all over with. And it was at that point, as Jesse said, he went, ah, stop, 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 stop. Now, he didn't reveal himself as Jesus at this point, but it says that he spent the rest of the trip, however long that was, walking along with them, explaining to them from Moses all the way through how the Messiah was supposed to die and supposed to go through all of this stuff. And that ultimately the story has not ended. So he brought understanding to where there was some some wrong thinking. But if Jesus had appeared to these people on the road and said, hey, I'm here, surprise! None of that discipling would have taken place because they would have been so, oh, Jesus, you're here, Jesus, you're here! Then also, I mean, with the transfiguration, where he revealed himself, who he is, mm-hmm. before he even went to the cross, that knocked John and Peter, it knocked him out. Yes, it did. The power of his glory, you know, so they they wouldn't have heard his words. There's another verse that's really interesting in verse 32. After Jesus has revealed himself to them and after he vanished from sight, they then talk amongst themselves and they say, didn't our hearts burn within us while he was talking with us on the road? And for me, and I can't say it's the same for all of you, but for me, when God the Holy Spirit is revealing truth to me, there's a burning that takes place in here. There's this something, and I I describe it as a burning or as even a, a palpitation, but it's not a physical palpitation. It's not like my heart's racing. But there's something that goes on right in here in me that I'm aware that God is talking to me, communicating with me, and imparting to me the truth that I need for whatever it is that's going on. And I was like, wow, I've always identified with that, my whole Christian walk. Did not my heart burn within me when he was opening the scripture for me? There are times when, you know, you've heard the expression, that's that particular verse of scripture jumped off the page at me. That's the Holy Spirit of God quickening it, teaching you, opening it up to you. Your heart burns within you, knowing that it's God himself revealing this truth to me. But the, but the, the final thing that I wanted to share with us this morning is, now, let, let, me, let me back up a little bit. First of all, we cannot see Jesus unless he reveals himself to us. Okay, you can't just glibly walk up and say, I'm going to read the Bible. Or whatever. I'm going to go out into the to the woods and I'm going to see God. Only when God reveals God's self can you see him. God has to draw you. You can't dictate or demand, I'm going to go see God. God draws. You respond. That's number one. Number two, he leads you into all truth. And when there is 
miscues, when there is misdirection, when there is stuff going askew, he gently guides you back. Now, he said to these guys, oh, you foolish ones. While I was reading in some of the commentators, this, this, oh, you foolish ones, was not a mean-spirited, mean thing to say. He was chiding them, going, oh, come on. Come on, think about what you just said. That's kind of silly. Come on. Guys, listen. Okay, so he wasn't being mean. He wasn't being unkind. He was chiding them, getting their attention, getting them guy back to the thing. The other thing, and this is this is just an aside, something that, that, that I've, I've thought about for a long time, not just from my study this week. We see in other areas of scripture where they were commanded to tarry in Jerusalem until they were endued with power from on high. So it was God's purpose and God's plan to keep the core group of disciples in Jerusalem until the Pentecost, until the time of the pouring out of the Holy Spirit of God. And these two were leaving. So Jesus went and said, no, 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 you got to come back. Now, what he did was he let him go. And he walked with them and he shared with them truth and brought them to an understanding. But as soon as he was revealed to them, what did they do? They immediately that night went back seven miles uh, by foot. That's not an easy jaunt, folks, if you've ever done seven miles by foot. But they went back that night and met with the disciples. One of the commentators I read said that it was nine o'clock at night approximately. When they got back to the disciples, how this commentator knew, I have no idea. But that's what they said. So I, I try to back that up, and I'm thinking, well, they said it's almost night. So what time does the sun go down? Well, maybe the sun went down around 5, and then they were having dinner. And then they got on the road by 5.30 or 6 o'clock, and they were back by 9 o'clock. I don't know. But I just that was like I was like, wow, that was kind of interesting. But the, the point, though, was that for some reason it was important that they did not leave Jerusalem which I believe was that they needed to be empowered with the Holy Spirit of God before they went out to become witnesses. And Jesus had to bring them back in gently and say, no, no, don't leave yet. Don't leave yet. It's not over with. You think it is, but it's not. But the one key thing, and this was so, so cool, you weren't aware of it. And I can't, I didn't write it down, but you said something at the beginning of this service and I almost started weeping. Because it was exactly the thing I wanted to say at the end of this service. And that's Jesus revealed himself through the bread and through the wine. It was in the Eucharist. It was in the sharing of the meal. This is my body. This is my blood. Remember me. This sense of coming to know Jesus. Do you know... Um, I can't share the name because we're recording this, but there was a young child in this congregation a number of years back who is now a, an adult and serving God in their life, active and vital in their belief and, and attending a church someplace else now, but they are vital in their faith. And the reason they got saved was because it was, I believe it was Easter Sunday morning and they were not allowed to take communion. Because their parents said no. And the parent was adamant, until you know Jesus as your Savior and have a personal testimony, you don't take communion. Well, my sibling got to. I understand, and your sibling is a Christian. But you've never made a profession of faith, and until you do, you may not take communion. And they came to me, and we went back into that nursery, and the sibling 
I, I helped the sibling, the older sibling, lead their younger sibling to Christ that morning. And then the child said to their parent, can I take communion now? And the parent said, of course you can. And we went back into the sanctuary and got the elements, and we brought them back into the nursery. And we as a group, the parent and the two kids and me, shared communion together. That's the power of God revealing himself to the spirit or soul of a human being through the Eucharist. That's why as, as Wesley and Arminian, we say this is a sacrament. This is something that is not just to be taken lightly. God moves in and through this sharing of this meal. It's not just bread, not just juice. This is a powerful, holy moment where God reveals himself to each one of us in a powerful and mighty way. And that was the thing that I felt of all of it that God said to me. I'm not playing games. I'm not manipulating a situation. What I'm doing is I am refining the faith of these two. And I am bringing them back to where they need to be so that they can be empowered for the service that I'm calling them to. And I'm revealing my true self to them as they share this bread and this drink with me. That's the power and the story of Luke 24. And the reality is, God the Holy Spirit inspired Luke to include it in his book. And if you go back to the beginning of Luke and to the beginning of Acts, Luke specifically wrote his gospel and the book of Acts as a letter of instruction to somebody named Theophilus, a lover of God. Because that person needed to understand better what it meant to have a relationship with God. And so this Theophilus received this letter written by Luke, and one of the last things Luke included in his letter was, God himself draws and instructs and reveals himself. In the bread and in the drink. In a shared meal. And he will guide you into all truth. Understand that, Theophilus. Understand that, O lover of God. As you share the meal, God will reveal himself to you. If you're willing to listen. If you're looking. What a powerful, powerful, powerful message. Thank you, Jesus. Let's pray.